18, to eat for her mother and sister. He whipped the latter because she refused to give him two of the wagon wheels. The city made a case against both for the whipping, and the wife, although coming to town alone frequently during the day, brought her baby and everything to the council room, plead guilty and was fined one and costs. Billy didn't appear, but if he stays in this country Marshal Wimpy will have him, when all these things will come to a light, both in the council chamber and grand jury room, the scandal of newspaper down in Georgia Island of course, Tom Watson, who publishes the Jeffersonian, a misnamed paper if there ever was one in the town of Thompson, many years ago, when Edward P. Thomas, now assistant to the President of the United States Steel Corporation, was a little boy in Atlanta, complaining about having his ears washed, when Theodore de Russo, secretary to Mayor Mitchell of New York, was having his early education drilled into him at the Ivy Street School, when Ralph Peters, now president of the Long Island Railroad, had left Atlanta and become a division superintendent on the Panhandle Road, when the parents of Ivy Ledbetter Lee were wondering to what college they would send him when he grew to be a big boy, when Robert Adamson was a page in the Georgia legislature as long ago as that. Tom Watson was waving his red head and prominent Adam's apple as a member of the State House of Representatives. In the mad and merry days of Bryanism he became a populist member of Congress. He was nominated for vice president, to run on the populist ticket with Bryan. Later he ran for president on the ticket of some unheard of party, organized in protest against the conservatism of the populists. Watson's paper reminds one of Bran and his iconoclast, reading it. I had never been able to discover what Watson was for. All I could find out was what he was violently against and that is almost everything. He is the wild ass of Georgia journalism, the thistles of chaos are sweet in him, and order in any department of life is a chestnut burr beneath his tail. Chapter XXXB Some Atlanta Institutions There has been great rejoicing in Atlanta over the raising of funds for the establishment there of two new universities, Emory and Oglethorpe. Emory was founded in 1914 as the result of a feud which developed in Vanderbilt University, located at Nashville, Tennessee, over the question as to whether the institution should be controlled by the Board of Bishops of the Southern Methodist Episcopal Church, or by the university trustees, who were not so much interested in the development of the sectarian side of the university. The fight was taken to the courts where the trustees won. As a result, Methodist influence and support were withdrawn from Vanderbilt which thenceforward became a non-sectarian college, and Emory was started Atlanta having been selected as its home because nearly a million and a half dollars was raised in Atlanta to bring it there. Oglethorpe is to be a Presbyterian institution, and starts off with a million dollars. This will give Atlanta three rather important colleges, since she already has the technical branch of the University of Georgia, the main establishment of which located at Athens, Georgia, is one of the oldest state universities in the country. Having been founded in 1801, the University of Tennessee is the oldest state university in the South. It was founded in 1794. The University of Pennsylvania, dating from 1740, is the oldest of all state universities. Harvard, founded in 1636, was the first college established in the country, and the only other American colleges which survive from the 17th century are William and Mary, at Williamsburg, Virginia established in 1693, and Street John's College, at Annapolis, dating from 1696. There is a tendency in some parts of the South to use the terms, college, and, university, loosely. Some schools for white persons, doing little if anything more than grammar and high school work, are called, colleges, 
and Negro institutions doing similar work are sometimes grandiloquently termed universities. Atlanta has 13 public schools for Negroes, but no public high school for them. There are, however, six large private educational institutions for Negroes in the city, doing high school, college, or graduate work, making Atlanta a great colored educational center. Of these, Atlanta University, a non-sectarian company educational college with a white president Mr. Edward T. Weir, whose father came from New England and founded the institution in 1867, is, I believe, the oldest and largest. It is very highly spoken of. Atlanta and Clark Universities are the only two colored colleges in Atlanta listed in the World Almanac's Table of American Universities and Colleges. Clark also has a white man as president. Spelman Seminary, a Baptist institution for colored girls, has a white woman president, and is partially supported by Rockefeller money. Morehouse College, for boys, has a colored president, an able man, is of similar denomination and is also partially supported by Rockefeller funds. Spelman and Morehouse are run separately, excepting in college work, on which they combine. Both are said to be excellent. Morris Brown University is not a university at all, but does grammar and high school work. It is officered and supported by colored people. All churches of the African Methodist Episcopal denomination subscribing funds for its maintenance. Gammon Theological Seminary is, I am informed, the one adequately endowed educational establishment for Negroes in Atlanta. It would, of course, be a splendid thing if the best of these schools and colleges could be combined. Citizens of Atlanta do not, generally, take the interest they ought to take in these or other institutions for the benefit of Negroes. To be sure, most Southerners do not believe in higher education for Negroes, but, even allowing for that viewpoint, it is manifestly unfair that white children should have public high schools and that Negro children should have none but should be obliged to pay for their education above the grammar grades. Perhaps there are people in Atlanta who believe that even a high school education is undesirable for the Negro. That, however, seems to me a pretty serious thing for one race to attempt to decide for another especially when the deciding race is not deeply and sincerely interested in the uplift of the race over which it holds the whip hand. Certainly intelligent people in the South believe in industrial training for the Negro and equally certainly a Negro high school could give industrial training. Negroes are not admitted to Atlanta parks, nor are there any parks exclusively for them. Until recently there was no contagious disease hospital to which Negroes could be taken, and there is not now a reformatory for colored girls in the state of Georgia. Neither is there any provision whatsoever in the state for the care of feeble-minded colored children. And there is one thing even worse to be said, shameful as are Georgia's frequent lynchings. Shameful as is the state's indifference to Negro welfare, blacker yet is the law upon her statute books making the age of consent ten years. Various women's organizations, and individual women, have, for decades, worked to change this law, but without success. The term, Southern Chivalry, must ring mocking and derisive in the ears of Georgia legislators until this disgrace is wiped out. Standing as it does, it means but one thing, that in order to protect some white males in their depravity, the voters of Georgia are satisfied to leave little girls, 10, 11, 12 years of age, and upward, white as well as colored, utterly unprotected by the law in this regard. I had heard more than one woman in Georgia intimate that she would be well pleased with a little less exterior, chivalry, and a little more plain justice, aside from their efforts to change the age of consent law.
leading women in the state have been working for compulsory education, for the opening of the state university to women, for factory inspection and decent child labor laws. The question of child labor has now been taken in hand by the national government as, of course, the age of consent should also be but in other respects but little progress has been made in Georgia. From such cheerless items I turn gladly to a happier theme. As I have said elsewhere in this book, many colored people in Atlanta are doing well in various ways. At Atlanta University I saw several students whose fathers and mothers were graduates of the same institution. Higher education for the Negro has, thus, come into its second generation. More prosperous Negroes in Atlanta are doing social settlement work among less fortunate members of their race, and have started a free kindergarten for Negro children. Many good people in Atlanta are unaware of these facts, and I believe their judgment on the entire Negro question would be modified, at least in certain details, were they merely to inform themselves upon various creditable Negro activities in the city. The Northern Stranger, attempting to ascertain the truth about the Negro and the Negro problem, has to this extent the advantage of the average southerner, prejudice and indifference do not prevent his going among the Negroes to find out what they are doing for themselves. At various times in my life chance has thrown me into contact with charities in great variety, and philanthropic work of many kinds. I have seen theoretical charities, sentimental charities, silly charities, pauperizing charities, wild and charities, charities which did good and others which work damaging the world, I have seen organized charities splendidly run under difficult circumstances as in the Department of Charities under Commissioner Kingsbury, in New York City, and I have seen other organized charities badly run at great expense, I have seen charities conducted with the primary purpose of ministering to the vanity of self-important individuals who like to say, see all the good that I am doing, and I have seen other personal charities operated as in the case of the Rockefeller Foundation with a perfectly magnificent scope and effectiveness. Nevertheless, of all the charities I have seen, of all the efforts I have witnessed to improve the condition of humanity, none has taken a firmer hold upon my heart than the Leonard Street Orphan's Home. For Negro Girls, in Atlanta, the home is a humble frame building which was used as a barracks by northern troops stationed in Atlanta after the Civil War. In it reside Miss Chadwick, her helpers, and about 70 little Negro girls, and it is an interesting fact that several of the helpers are young colored women who, themselves brought up in the home and taught to be self-supporting, have been drawn back to the place by homesickness. Was ever before an orphan homesick for an orphan's home? Miss Chadwick is an English woman, coming out to America a good many years ago. She somehow found Atlanta, and in Atlanta somehow found this orphanage which was then both figuratively and literally dropping to pieces. Someone had to take hold of it. So Miss Chadwick did. How successful she has been it is hard to convey in words. I do not mean that she has succeeded in building up a great flourishing plant with a big endowment and all sorts of improvements. Far from it. The home stands on a tiny lot. The building is ramshackle and not nearly large enough for its purpose. And sometimes it seems doubtful where the money to keep it going will come from. Nevertheless the home is a hundred times more successful than I could have believed a home for orphans, colored or white, could be made, had I not seen it with my own eyes. Its success lies not in material possessions or prosperity, not in the food and shelter it provides to those who so pitifully needed it, but in the fact that it is in the truest and finest sense a home, a place endowed with the greatest blessings any home can have, contentment and affection. What Miss Chadwick has provided island in short, 
an institution with a heart. How did she do it? That, like the other mystery of how she manages to house those 70 small lively people in that little building, is something which only heaven and Miss Chadwick understand. But then, if you have ever visited the home and met Miss Chadwick, and seen her with her children, you know that heaven and Miss Chadwick understand a lot of things the rest of us don't know about at all. Chapter XXXVI A bit of rural Georgia to walk with the morning and watch its rose unfold, to drowse with the noontide lulled in its heart of gold, to lie with the night time and dream the dreams of old. Madison C.A.W.E.I.N. A man I know studies as a hobby something which he calls graphics, the term denoting the reaction of the mind to certain words. One of the words he used in an experiment with me was winter. When he said winter, there instantly came to me the picture of a snowstorm in Quebec. I saw the front of the hotel front and I cap dusk through a mist of driving snow. There were lights in the windows. A heavy wind was blowing and as I leaned against it the front of my overcoat was plastered with sticky white flakes. The streets and sidewalks were deep with snow. And the only person besides myself in the vision was a sentry standing with his gun in the lee of the vestibule outside the local militia headquarters. If my friend were to come now and try me with the word, spring, I know what picture it would call to mind. I should see the bird plantation, near Covington, Georgia, the simple old white house with its rose-clad porch, or, gallery, its grove of tall trees, its carriage house, its well house, and other minor dependencies clustering nearby like chickens about a white hen, its background the rolling cotton fields, their red soil glowing salmon colored in the Sunday for, as I was never so conscious of the brutality of winter as in that evening snowstorm at Quebec, I was never so conscious as at the time of our visit to the bird plantation, of the superlative soft sweetness of the spring, in seasons, as in other things, we had our individual preferences, melancholy natures usually love autumn, with its colorings so like sweet sad minor chords, but what kind of natures they are which rejoice in spring, which feel that with each spring the gloomy past is blotted out, and life, with all its opportunities, begins a new what kind of natures they are which recognize April instead of January as the beginning of their year I shall not attempt to tell, for mine is such a nature, and one must not act at once as subject and diagnostician, so long as I endure, spring can never come again without turning my thoughts to northwestern Georgia, to the peculiar penetrating warmth which passed through the clothing to the body and made one feel that one was not surrounded by mere air, but was immersed in a dry bath of some infinitely superior vapor, a vapor volatile, soothing, tonic, distilled, it seemed, from the earth, from pine trees, tulip trees, balm of Gilead trees, or, them, trees, as they call them, blossoming Judas trees, Georgia crab apple, dogwood pink and white, peach blossom, wisteria, sweet shrub, dog violets, pansy violets, Cherokee roses, wild honeysuckle and azalea, and the evanescent green of new treetops, all carried in solution in the sunlight. By day the brilliant cardinal adds his fine note of color and sound, but at night he is silent, and when the moon comes out one hears the mocking bird and, it may be also, two whippoorwills, one in the grove near the house, one in the woods across the road, calling back and forth, then one is tempted to step down from the porch, and follow the voices of the birds into the vague recesses of a night webbed with dark tree shadows outlined in blue moonlight. Small wonder if island if, as report says, no house party on a southern plantation is a success unless young couples become sort of engaged, and if in a region so provocative in springtime under a full moon, a distinction is recognized between being merely engaged, and being engaged to be married, 
one Georgia Bell we met, a slow egg girl whose reputation not only for beauty but for charm reached through the entire South, had, at the time of our visit, recently become engaged in the more grave and permanent sense. How does it seem? A girlfriend asked her. I feel, she answered, like a man who has built up a large business and is about to go into the hands of a receiver. Such ways as those girls have, such voices, such eyes, and such names, too. Names which would not fit at all into a northern setting, relatively so hard and insentimental, but which, when one becomes accustomed to them, take their place gracefully and harmoniously in the southern picture. The South likes diminutives and combinations in its women's names, its Harriets, Francis's, Sarah's, and Martha's, become Happy's, Fanny's, Sully's and Patsy's, and Patsy sometimes undergoes a further transition and becomes Patsy. Moreover, where these diminutives have been passed down for several generations in a family, their origin is sometimes lost sight of, and the diminutive becomes the actual baptismal name. In one family of my acquaintance, for example, the name Passy has long been handed down from mother to daughter. The original great-grandmother Passy was christened Martha but was at first called Patsy, then, because her black mammy was also named Patsy, the daughter of the house came to be known for purposes of differentiation, as Passy, and when she married and had a daughter of her own, the child was christened Passy, in this family the name May has more recently been adopted as a middle name, and it is customary for familiars of the youngest Passy, to address her not merely as Passy, but as Passy May, the inclusion of the second name, in this fashion, is another custom not uncommon in the South, in Atlanta alone I heard of ladies habitually referred to as Anna Laura, Happy May, Lolly Bell, Sally Mode, Nora Bell, Mattie Sue, Emma Bell, Lottie Bell, Susie May, Lula Bell, Sally Fanny, Happy Fanny, Lou Ellen, Ali Lou, Clara Bell, Mariella, and Happy Bell. Another young lady was known to her friends as Jenny D. The train from Atlanta set us down at Covington, Georgia, or rather at the station which lies between the towns of Covington and Oxford for when this railroad was built neither town would allow it a right of way and to the state each is connected with the station by a streetcar line, either line equipped with one diminutive car, a pair of disconsolate mules, and a driver. Covington is the county seat, a quiet southern town, part old, part new, with a look of rural prosperity about it. Stopping at the post office to inquire for mail we saw this peremptory sign displayed, when the window is down don't bang around and ask for a stamp or two. JLCALLAWA, Postmaster. As the window was down we tiptoed out and went upon our way, driving through Oxford before going to the plantation. This town was named for Oxford, England, and Ireland like its namesake. A college town, a small and very old Methodist educational institution, with a pretty though ragged campus and fine trees, is all there is to Oxford, save a row of antebellum houses, one of them, a pleasant white mansion, half concealed by the huge magnolias which stand in its front yard was at one time the residence of General Longstreet. The old front gate, hanging on a stone post, was made by the general with his own hands and well made, for it is today as good a gate as ever. Cora Harris lived at one time in Oxford, her husband, Ref. Lundy H. Harris, having been a professor at the college, though plantation life has necessarily changed since the war. I do not believe that there is in the whole South a plantation where it has changed less than on the Berg plantation. In appearance the place is not as Sherman's men found it, 
for they tore down the fences and ruined the beautiful old-fashioned garden, and neither has been replaced, nor, of course, is it run, so far as practical affairs are concerned, as it was before the war, that is to say, instead of being operated as a unit of 900 acres, it is now worked chiefly on shares, and is divided up into one mule farms and two mule farms, these being tracts of about 30 and 60 acres, respectively. 30 acres being approximately the area which can be worked by a man and a mule. Practically all the Negroes on the place perhaps a hundred in number are either former slaves of the Berg family, or the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of slaves who lived on the plantation. That is one reason why the plantation is less changed in spirit than are many others. The Bergs were religious people, used their slaves kindly, and brought them up well, so that the Negroes on the plantation do they are respectable and in some instances, exemplary people, very different from the vagrant Negro type which has developed since the war, making labor conditions in some parts of the South uncertain, and plantation life, in some sections, not safe for unprotected women. The present proprietors of the Berg plantation are two ladies, granddaughters of Mrs. Thomas Berg, who lived here, a widow, with a little daughter, when General Sherman and his hosts came by. These ladies frequently spend months at the plantation without male protectors save only the good Negroes of their own place, who look after them with the most affectionate devotion. True, the ladies keep an ugly-looking but mild-mannered bulldog, of which the Negroes are generally afraid. True also they carry a revolver when they drive about the country in their motor, and keep revolvers handy in their rooms, but these precautions are not taken, they told me, because of any doubts about the men on their place their one fear being of tramp negroes, passing by, of their own negroes several are remarkable, particularly one old couple, perfect examples of the fine antebellum type so much beloved in the south, and so much regretted as it disappears, during the period of twenty years or more, while the owners were absent, growing up and receiving their education, the whole place, indoors and out, was in charge of Uncle George and Aunt Sydney, the two lived, and still do live, in one wing of the house over which Aunt Sydney presides as housekeeper and cook, as her mother, Aunt Liddy, did before her. Aunt Liddy died only a short time ago, aged several years over a hundred. Uncle George supervises all the business of the plantation, as he has done for thirty or forty years. He collects all rents, markets the crops and receives the payments, makes purchases, pays bills and keeps peace between the tenants nor could any human being be more honorable or possess a finer sweeter dignity, as for devotion, when the little girls who were away returned after all the years as grown women, every ribbon, every pin in that house was where it had been left, and the place was no less neat than if the white folks had constantly remained there, before Georgia went dry it was customary for negroes of the rougher sort to get drunk in town every Saturday night, drunken negroes would consequently be passing by, all night, on their way to their homes, yelling and after the manner of their kind when intoxicated shooting their revolvers in the air, every Saturday night, when the ladies were at home, Uncle George would quietly take his gun and place himself on the porch, remaining there until the last of the obstreperous wayfarers had passed. Uncle Abe and Uncle Wiley are two other worthy and venerable men who live in cabins on the place, both were there when Sherman's army passed upon its devastating way, and both were carried off as were thousands upon thousands of other Negroes out of that wide belt across the state of Georgia, which was overrun in the course of the march to the sea. I was going to mill with the ox caught, Uncle Abe told me, 
when the soldiers take in long and got me. They told me, he, nigga, get out that cop, and walk beat him. When it moves you move, when it stops you stop. And like that I'll walk all the way to Savannah 250 miles. Then, after that, they took us long up north me on Mabrothawali, over the, I asked him what regiment he went with. He said it was the 22nd Indiana, and that Dr. Joe Stillwell, of that regiment, who came from a place near Madison, Indiana, I reckoned the town was named Brownstown, was good to him, an officer whom he knew, he said, was Captain John Snodgrass, and another Major Tom Shea, all I was ever worried about after they can cut me, he declared, was getting some up to eat, dad can to put me on the wind up, some at Emmys, but they used us all right. Dr. pegged him dad did the practice on the plantation before the lot he told the niggas dad the Yankees would put bags in the moose and lead em around like they was cattle. But do what do like dad know how? I gone to the second division. Thud brigade. 14th Company Corps. Captain Snodgrass. He got to be Lieutenant Connell. He was the highest man I've ever held any conversation with. But I saw all the generals of dad on me. Uncle Wiley is older than Uncle Abe. He was already a grown man with three children when taken away by some of Sherman's men. He told me he was with the 52nd Ohio, and mentioned Captain Shepard. The two brothers got as far as Washington, D.C. We got lost till Jada in the U.S. building in Dad City, said Uncle Wiley. The president of the U.S. right at that time he was dead. He was killed. God don't suppose it was a week before we got to Washington, D.C. How did you happen to come all the way back? I asked. Well L, ruminated the old man. Home was always a restin' on my minimum. Doc up thinking about home. So after the loss he stood Ajus kin long back. Many of the old plantation customs still survive. A little before noon the bell is rung to summon the hands from the cotton fields. Over the red plowed soil you hear a darky cry. A melodious, oh oh oh. As wild and musical as the cries of the South Italian olive gatherers. The planters cease their work. Mules stand still. Traces are unhooked from single trees, and chain ends thrown over the mules' backs, then the men mount the animals and ride into the midday meal. The women trudging after, those who rent land, or work on shares, go to their own cabins, while those employed by the hour or by the day the rate of pay is 10 cents an hour or 75 cents a day come to the kitchen to be fed, nor is it customary to stop there at feeding Negroes, as in the old days. Any Negro who has come upon an errand or who has stopped by to sell supplies, or for whatever purpose, expects to stay for dinner, and makes it a point to arrive about noon. Thus from 16 to 20 Negroes are fed daily at the Berg Plantation House. The old Christmas traditions are likewise kept up. On Christmas Day the Negroes come flocking up to the house for their gifts. Their first concern is to attempt to cry Christmas gift to others before it can be said to them for according to ancient custom the one who says the words first must have a gift from the other. Chapter XXXVII A young metropolis and observer approaching a strange city should be neutral even in thought. He may listen to what is said of the city, but he must not permit his opinions to take form in advance, for, like other gossip, gossip about cities is unreliable, and the casual stranger's estimate of cities is not always founded upon broad appreciations. But though it is unwise to judge of cities by what is said of them, it is perhaps worth remarking that one may often judge of men by what they say of cities. I remember an American manufacturer, broken down by overwork, who, when he looked at Pompeii, could think only of the wasted possibilities of Vesuvius as a power plant, 
and I remember to traveling salesmen on a southern railroad train who expressed scorn for the exquisite city of Charleston because they said it is but a poor marketplace for suspenders and barbers' supplies. There are those who think of Boston only as headquarters of the shoe trade, others who think of it only in the terms of culture, and still others who regard it solely as an abode of Negro files. In the case of the chief city of Alabama, however, my companion and I noticed, as we journeyed through the South, that reports were singularly in accord. Birmingham is too young to have any Civil War history. Her history is the history of the steel industry in the South, and one hears always of that, of the affluence of the city when the industry is thriving, and hard times when it is not. One is invariably told that Birmingham is not a southern city, but a northern city in the South, and the chief glories of the place, aside from steel, are if one is to believe rumors current upon railroad trains and elsewhere. A 27-story building, Senator Oscar Underwood, the distinguished Democratic leader, and the Tootwiller Hotel. Even in Atlanta it is conceded that the Tootwiller is a good hotel, and when Atlanta admits that anything in Birmingham is good it may be considered as established that the thing is very, very good for Birmingham and Atlanta view each other with the same degree of cordiality as is exchanged between St. Louis and Kansas City, Minneapolis and St. Paul, San Francisco and Los Angeles. Having been, in the course of our southern wanderings, in several very bad hotels, and having heard the Tootwiller compared with Chicago's Blackstone, my companion and I held eager anticipation of this hostelry, nor were our hopes dashed by a first glimpse of the city on the night of our arrival. It was a modern-looking city just the sort of city that would have a fine new hotel. The railroad station through which we passed after leaving the train was not the usual dingy little southern station, but an admirable building and the streets along which we presently found ourselves gliding in an automobile hack, were wide, smooth, and brightly illuminated by clustered boulevard lights. True, we had long since learned not to place too much reliance upon the nocturnal aspects of cities. A city seen by night is like a woman dressed for a ball. Darkness drapes itself about her as a black velvet evening gown, setting off, in place of neck and arms, the softly glowing facades of marble buildings, lights are her diamond ornaments, and her perfume is the cool fragrance of night air, almost all cities, and almost all women, look their best at night, and there are those which, though beautiful by night, sink, in their daylight aspect, to utter mediocrity, presently our motor drew up before the entrance of the two-wheeler proud entrance, all revolving doors and glitter and promise, a brisk bell boy came running for our bags, the signs were of the best, the lobby, though spacious, was crowded, 